everybody. I think we can start. Uh, and this is a great crowd this morning. I, I am. Uh, uh, this is an important subject, and uh, it's good to see all of you here. I want to welcome you all. I think most of you know me. Uh, I'm Dick Morningstar, and uh, uh, director, founding director, and chairman of the uh, Global Energy Center here at the Atlantic Council. And I'm pleased to welcome you here this morning. Uh, for the discussion of Agnia Grigas's new report on natural gas diplomacy strategy uh, for our new, <clears throat> new U.S. administration. Uh, and by the way, there are reports uh, outside that you can, uh, if you haven't already picked them up, you can uh, pick them up as you, uh, when, you, uh, when you leave. Uh, so, you know, I, I have all these little talking points here that, I, that are very good, but uh, uh, I, I may be just stating the obvious. We know that uh, the United States has emerged in recent years uh, as a leader in the production of natural gas uh, and LNG, and uh, there is an opportunity for the new administration uh, to and Congress, the Republican majority Congress, uh, to uh, reassess our energy policies uh, relating, uh, relating to natural gas. Uh, and I think the uh, president has made clear during the campaign that uh, gas exports is something that he wants to encourage. And, uh, uh, and it's not as easy, as we'll see during the discussion, it's you know, not as easy as that just to you know, make that statement. Uh, there are a lot of complex questions that relate to it. Uh, but uh, as Agnia, Agnia mentions in her report, there really is an opportunity uh, to expand our influence and, uh, and that natural gas can be, uh, exports can be good for jobs in the United States. It can be good for our, uh, it can be good for our foreign policy. So not only uh, are we uh, eager to learn today from you, Agnia, on your thoughts uh, on what U.S. priorities should be, uh, we also look forward to uh, uh, discussing uh, recent developments that are taking place and what, what that strategy ought to be. Uh, the panel, of course, will be involved in that discussion first after Anya gives her uh, opening presentation and then we'll open it up to the floor uh, for questions. Uh, but to, we, we do have an impressive panel with us today. Uh, Anya is the author of the report. She's a senior fellow with us here at the Atlantic Council. I'm, I'm not going to go into extended biographies because you have them in front of you. Uh, we also have, and uh, this is going to be very helpful, I think, Sudin Kelly, uh, who's a partner at Aiken Gump and chairs the firm's energy practice. And Sudin is also a former commissioner with the FERC and uh, is in a particularly good position to talk about whether or not procedures uh, need to be streamlined and how they, how they could be streamlined. And then uh, we have Tim Borsma, who we know well here at the Atlantic Council from his days at Brookings and is now you're now associated with Jason Bordoff Center at Columbia, mm -hmm. so uh, we're, we always look forward to uh, always look forward to hearing from uh, Tim. So I want to thank you all uh, for being here today, and 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 uh, we want to remind everybody this is an on-the-record discussion, uh, and it will be streaming live. So you know anything here that's said by anybody is public, uh, and you can join in the conversation uh, on 
on Twitter at AC Global Energy, and don't forget to hashtag AC Energy. So Agnes is going to speak for no more than 10 minutes. Uh, and I've moderated enough of these conversations that I will pull out the hook after 10 minutes uh, if it goes longer. And then uh, I'll ask some questions and uh, uh, then go to the audience. So I'm there. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for coming. Um, this report draws on a two-year research project, and it actually draws on the findings of my newest book, uh, The New Geopolitics of Natural Gas, which is forthcoming from Harvard University Press this April. So this report and this book um, draws, uh, I think, well, something we, we all know here today, um, that these are indeed very exciting times and changing times for those of us that watch energy. The global energy markets and America's domestic energy standing really couldn't be more different today than it was eight years ago when President Obama took office. And uh, there are three key factors here we see today. Well, one is that the US is uh, now emerging as an energy superpower. It is the largest natural gas producer in the world. It is the largest oil producer in the world. And it's poised to be today as a significant LNG ex exporter. Uh, we also see the natural gas markets uh, experiencing what I believe is really a historic shift, uh, uh, a major transition from gas uh, being a localized and regional resource to gas increasingly becoming a global or a more global commodity. And we certainly have a new presidential administration, um, an administration that has expressed that they're going to be very bullish on energy. Uh, we have already an America first energy plan um, that will prioritize energy production. And we will see more what that means, um, I think, uh, in, in this year. And we also have, uh, uh, very fittingly, seemingly, for an energy superpower, um, Rex Tillerson, uh, the former CEO of energy giant Exxon, now being you know, poised to be the, our next Secretary of State. So indeed, it would appear that the time would be right uh, for America to harness its uh, energy superpower status and pursue energy diplomacy. At the same time, we also have uh, um, an administration that has stated that they will put America first, always. And we will see what that will mean, whether indeed uh, energy policy will be focused only on uh, domestic benefits, uh, um, jobs, production, and so on, or, or whether there will be also a view towards um, how energy can be used for American foreign policy, how it can be used to support its allies, and so on. So why the focus on natural gas markets? And this is really the focus of my report and the focus of my, my new book. Um, as I mentioned, gas is uh, on the verge of becoming a global commodity. And, uh, it's really different from when it was um, a local, uh, a regional resource that uh, was difficult to transport, that had to rely on uh, uh, land-based pipelines, and uh, where the gas trade relationships were all, always or often highly politicized. So right now we have a boom in uh, global gas production. I mean, that was really spearheaded by the US shale revolution. Um, we have a growth of LNG trade, um, and we have a buildup of uh, gas transport infrastructure worldwide, particularly import and export, but also other types of gas transport infrastructure. 
And the United States became an LNG exporter in 2016, despite the low gas prices and despite some maybe market caution, uh, American LNG exports went across the globe. I mean, the, the list of countries is impressive. It really went worldwide, Brazil, India, United Arab Emirates, Argentina, Portugal, Kuwait, Chile, Spain, China, Jordan, Dominican Republic, and Mexico. So uh, despite, again, some skepticism, it appeared there was economic for American uh, LNG exports to go across the globe. And we also are experiencing a change in how gas is traded, in those common practices of gas trade. Um, and the United States is really leading that change. So we, we are witnessing a move away from long-term gas contracts towards sp more spot trade and shorter trades. We're seeing um, a move away from oil-linked contracts to more hub-based pricing for gas. And we see destination clauses increasingly disappearing. So what does that mean for the United States? Um, what does it mean for its foreign policy opportunities? I believe that this really represents an unprecedented opportunity for the United States to take a leadership role in the global gas markets, to cement its position, um, and to pursue natural gas diplomacy. So it would mean supporting its allies um, in Europe, um, the United States has long had an interest in helping Europe diversify away from Russian gas. Um, certainly, as we'll go into the discussion, it's not so, it's not so simple because commercial matters drive those, uh, drive those exports. But there's also an opportunity to uh, um, contain some of our adversaries, uh, such as Russia, which was, uh, before the US emerged as the, the leading gas, pro uh, gas producer, it was Russia, the leading gas uh, producer and exporter. And uh, this gives us an opportunity to potentially reshape um, relations with uh, some of our rival powers, particularly the energy-hungry powers such as China in Asia and others. This gives the United States a, a carrot, um, a carrot of energy exports. And wh what could be some of the main results of this changing geopolitics of natural gas? Um, I believe that this liquidity and optionality in the markets will depoliticize gas flows. And uh, it is already, I think, becoming evident that um, as importers have more options, as importing countries, uh, they have, they're in a better bargaining position with exporting countries. So it's becoming a type of buyer's market. And uh, this benefits man many of our existing allies in Europe. In terms of some recommendations um, that I, and I go a little bit in, in, in the report in this, but um, some of the recommendations are, I believe at this point, the United States, while it thinks about America first, um, and it thinks about America first energy policy, it should also take this opportunity to solidify its position in the global energy markets. Um, um, one, it's about really maintaining a steady course. Uh, in, in many ways, what was uh, already done over the past eight years with production and exports. Um, but it's also about boosting infrastructure. And uh, I, from what we hear from the new administration, he's certainly in favor of uh, infrastructure. In terms of gas pipelines, there's certainly some improvements that can be done, particularly connecting existing um, gas production regions to either consumer markets in the United States or with export terminals. 
Um, there's opportunity uh, to help eliminate environmentally damaging practices like flaring, uh, which is burning off of gas, if there is the existing infrastructure to collect that gas and again, help, uh, help reach it to market. Um, trade agreements, I think, are gonna be uh, certainly uh, a consideration in this new administration. Um, certainly there uh, doesn't appear to be appetite for free trade agreements as we've seen from the canceled uh, TPP and uh, uh, seemingly TTIP is gonna have a similar fate. But there's room for considering other trade agreements um, to, that would boost uh, American LNG exports. And I think there's also importantly room for cooperation with our allies, um, particularly NATO about energy security. Uh, NATO over the years has really thought about energy security and energy, but it has not yet developed a comprehensive maybe strategy and approach to that. And the United States now as an energy superpower, as a, a leading gas producer, as a rising gas exporter has an opportunity to take um, you know, a, a leading position on this issue. So I'll, I'll stop here. I think uh, we'll have an interesting discussion on some of the nuts and bolts. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Agnia. And uh, I think you gave a, an exceedingly clear presentation uh, of the issues, which I think gives us the basis for further conversation. Um, we're really, I think, very fortunate to have Sudin with us. It's not often that we have a real FERC person here, <laughs> uh, even if formerly so. Uh, and let me start by, you know, asking you this. You know, whenever we would have the discussion on simplifying LNG export procedures during the past administration, even directly with the secretary, uh, Moniz, he would say, ah, come on, it's not necessary. Licenses are being granted. Uh, there's uh, uh, you know, plenty of opportunity now uh, to export. Uh, it, Trying to play with it isn't going to really increase things, certainly not in the short to midterm. Uh, what, what's the big fuss? So I'll ask you that question, having been at FERC. Well, thank you, Dick. I do think that there is some room for improvement and for efficiencies. But before I answer your question, I just wanted to say that I am very pleased to be here and how fortunate I, I am and the gas industry, the regulatory side of the gas industry is to have Anya choose to spend her experience and her prodigious intellectual capacity and, and put it into this field. And I rely not only on the research that she produces, but also the analysis that she does. Um, she's exceedingly insightful. And I, um, I also appreciate that you take it that next step and um, come up with policy recommendations. So thank you to be, thank you for um, thank you. Uh, having me here today. So can we make the process more efficient? Yes, we can. There's really two steps to making this export happen in the regulatory arena. We need a approvals for export facilities, LNG export facilities, and we need export authorizations. The former comes from FERC. That's a long process. Um, it's regulated by the Natural Gas Act, and there are a lot of requirements that applicants have to go through and meet 
to come up with an authorization. It takes years. Can it be done more quickly? Yes, a bit more quickly. I think if we had more resources devoted to it at the agency, we could move it along faster. But um, there's a constraint. And that is that there is significant opposition now and will continue to be to the issuance of these authorizations. And everyone is contested and everyone will be litigated and everyone will be appealed to the circuit courts of appeal. In order to prevail in the courts, you have to have an exceedingly complete record. So we can speed the process up a bit, but the constraint is that we can't move so fast that we don't create the record that establishes the need for it and the environmental acceptability for it. At the DOE side, on the export license side, I think that Governor Perry, when he's confirmed as Secretary of Energy, could take some steps to um, increase the certainty associated with that process. There, are, there used to be conditional um, export authorizations that were issued early with conditions uh, that had to be met when the environmental assessment was done. The Obama administration eliminated that process. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Secretary Perry reinstitute it. The, um, the process is, is much more involved when the export is going to a non-free trade agreement country. In that case, a DOE looks to see whether it is quote unquote in the public interest. And that's, um, it'll be interesting to, and that phrase can be interpreted differently. It's in the statute as public interest. The Obama administration was um, very concerned about the amount of LNG that would ultimately be authorized for export and the impact that that would have on domestic prices as demand for that increased. Um, consequently, there was a condition put as best as I can recall in every export authorization, a condition that the authorization could be reopened. And that injects uncertainty into the marketplace um, to an extent. So I think it will be, um, at a minimum, fascinating to watch how policy unfolds at DOE and the arguments that Anya makes, um, I'm sure are gonna be made in the halls of DOE and in the secretary's office. Let me uh, follow up with one, one more question, then I'll ask Tim, Tim, Tim a few questions. What, what's the effect, uh, do, do, do you think there will be an effect by uh, the new administration, President Trump, pulling out of TPP uh, by, you know, let's assume for the purposes of this discussion that TTIP is dead, which I think it is for the time being anyway, uh, and, and there would be concomitant free, you know, free trade, that, that would allow for free trade uh, in uh, LNG. The failure to do that, how serious a problem is that, do you think? The, um, what Dick is referring to is that the Natural Gas Act, uh, when it comes to export authorization, has two different categories of approvals. One approval is virtually guaranteed if the um, 
export is going to a free trade agreement country. If it's not, the process is more involved. So at least on the face of it, having fewer free trade agreement countries uh, will have an adverse somewhat impact. Um, on the other hand, the interesting, uh, the way that the trade actually works is that because the LNG market is so logistical, even if you are selling into a known market, um, and it's a free trade agreement country and you have an export authorization, you really don't want to stop there because of the nature of the marketplace and to an extent the volatility of it and, and price. You may have your shipment um, in the ocean going to a destination and all of a sudden it's not going to work. And you need to send it somewhere else. It's expensive to just park it in the middle of the Pacific or the Atlantic. So in reality, um, if you are an exporter, you need both authorizations because you need a blanket authorization so that you can transport it to non-free trade agreement countries. So, so that's, that's an interesting point. So basically what you're saying is the key is streamlining the, yeah. the procedures in the first place, uh, given that, you, that exporters are going to need that no matter depending what. Depending on what happens to a shipment right. once it's gone. Right. Uh, and how you interpret um, public interest, how right. this administration interprets right. public interest. Right. Uh, Anya, you wanted and to say something. Just to jump in quickly, um, basically canceling uh, TPP will impact three markets immediately because among the TPP countries, not all were, let's say, LNG importers. Uh, some were, in fact, exporters. But uh, the markets where it really matters <coughs> is Japan. Um, that's a considerable potential market uh, for American LNG exports, and then Malaysia and Singapore are other LNG importers. Okay. Good. Uh, Tim, you know, we've <coughs> talked many times either on, you know, on panels or otherwise uh, about European energy security, the effect of Russia, uh, our, you know, our maybe differing opinions to some extent on Nord Stream 2. Uh, over, certainly over the past few years, we've, dis we've discussed that. I have, two, I guess, two questions to ask you. Is there any kind of inherent contradiction uh, between what would assumedly be this administration's focus on more LNG exports, uh, and if they do, in fact, have some kind of reset with Russia mm -hmm. and reduce opposition uh, to uh, uh, increased European dependence uh, on, on Russian gas. Uh, and I guess the corollary question is, does it even matter what we think? Uh, has it mattered what we thought over the past, uh, you know, past years? Yeah. Uh, and will it matter uh, if we change our position towards Russia? And isn't it all? In the end, at the end of the day, or this is a question, a Europe-Russia issue, and that there may be issues within Europe, but uh, the U.S. doesn't really have much of a role anyway. Uh, well, thanks first of all for having me. Um, that yeah, the that very basic notion, what exactly the the in, the influence of the U.S. is when it comes to energy diplomacy, is something that we talked about previously. Uh, it's a question that I've been grappling with and 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 puzzled about. Uh, for some time, um, and, I, and I don't have a final answer. Uh, we may well find out. Uh, we've now had an, uh, we've had an administration that was uh, very active 
in, in what it called energy diplomacy. Um, and if I were to characterize that uh, and, and, and not do justice to, to all the great work uh, the State Department uh, did in this space, then it meant that you know, the special envoy uh, and his staff oftentimes went to Europe and urged allies not to build Nord Stream 2. Uh, and that was so, and we're gonna, and we're gonna now find when, when you stop doing that, which may happen, we don't know that, but it may happen, uh, whether that then has an effect. Uh, and of course, there may be tons of other factors that tie into this, but um, I think that, um, yeah, th so there may be a contradiction. There may, I mean, there are many inherent contradictions in what we've, what we've learned so far about, uh, about this new administration, obviously. Um, there is, uh, I think, an inherent contradiction in, uh, on the one hand, wanting to unleash uh, an energy revolution to the extent that that hadn't happened already, um, but promoting domestic coal production and, and gas production at the same time seems, seems at odds, uh, right? Um, uh, and then, you know, remarks and, and, and desires that we've seen towards building an, an international alliances, uh, helping, out, helping out friends, and um, that seems somewhat contradictory too, or at least, in, 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 at least potentially. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I think there are more questions than answers at this point, um, but I'd be very interested to see. So I don't, and I don't, and I don't expect, in the short term at least, uh, curtailments of, of energy trade uh, per se. There are a number of, of reasons to think that. Uh, the, the president has expressed his support for, for trade, although I would remind that as a candidate at some point he was asked, he was, it was mentioned to him that LNG exports were bound to rise rapidly, and he said, that's great news, I support that. And then the second question was, what is LNG? Um, so I'd so I'd be so I'd be so I'd be at the same time you know a little bit a little bit more cautious as to say you know how how definitive that answer was. Um, there is obviously with you know the uh, uh, the new uh, Secretary of State, new Secretary of Energy, uh, uh, more. Um, more proven uh, support for, for energy trade, if you will, and, and free trade. Um, uh, to what extent the State Department is going to keep up its work that it's done under the previous administration is, is I think, a question that is uh, 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 to be answered. We don't know. Uh, it could well be that uh, uh, Secretary uh, Tillerson wants to uh, expand on this in this field, or, or maybe he doesn't. He has other priorities. Um, but, um, but, but going forward, I think a, a question to ask is, uh, and, to, and to contemplate is what happens if, uh, so we can all be in favor of free trade, what happens if natural gas prices uh, spike in, in say six or well, 12 months time? Uh, and what does, uh, what does the president do then uh, when he looks at where these exports actually go and finds out that the majority of them flow to Mexico? Uh, does he then look for opportunities to curtail that trade? We don't know that. Again, this is all uncharted territory. Um, but I think those are those are questions to grapple with. So on the one hand, we have an architecture, and and and, and as Agnia describes in her paper, in her paper we have a, a diplomacy architecture that has been built uh, for an extensive period of time. Uh, but it may be up for debate. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. You wanted to? I do. Uh, from my first, do you want to? No, go ahead. Uh, from my perspective, I, I do see a a type of contradiction between uh, potential interests of the United States to establish closer relations with Russia and at the same time the energy realities because I find that the interests are, are at odds. And from those of you who <coughs> know a little bit my work that I do on Russia and uh, Russian foreign policy, you know, it's another area where, where I think there are many areas where American and Russian interests are in fact at odds. Uh, but. The, today, um, Russia and the United States are in fact competitors in the energy markets. Um, uh, they're both natural gas producers, uh, they're both uh, exporters, and certainly for Russia, 
uh, energy exports have, have, have always been you know, crucial. Um, I mean, it's uh, the underlying uh, resource for their economy. It's uh, the, the main source of revenues for their budget. So uh, Russia has worked um, you know, hard um, to try to maintain and hold on to their markets. Um, so I think there will be this uh, you know, conflict of interest as we go forward, uh, not in some other areas that, that we know, uh, more traditional security, let's say, and foreign policy areas, but also this conflict of interest in the energy markets. I wanted to ask Anya a question about oil prices. Um, how should we think about the oil prices that LNG, our, our LNG exports compete with um, when you get into the diplomacy arena? If the LNG is um, competitively advantageous vis-a-vis -vis oil prices, then we're all swimming in the same current. But if it's not competitively advantageous, Will the desire to use it as a strategic resource override the competitive disadvantage? Would it make it more difficult for us to be supportive of it as a matter of diplomacy or not? Mm -hmm. I think um, we had a brief discussion about this. And I think this is, um, this is a very interesting point, because right now many people do discuss, well, are energy prices going to rise or oil prices are going to rise? And essentially, well, then uh, gas prices would follow. And uh, this uh, can have a twofold effect. On the one hand, if uh, you know, natural gas prices rise, then American LNG exports become more competitive. They become uh, more competitive uh, to, in Europe, in Asia, and beyond. So this would be a positive for American LNG exports. But at the same time, there's also, and, and Tim alluded to this, um, there's also uh, fears that um, if, um, energy prices rise, then there will be domestic political considerations for the United States, particularly for the Trump administration that really um, holds an America first type of policy. So if energy prices are high, will the United States be as supportive of LNG exports and would prefer to keep these uh, resources at home to support American industry, let's say, to give America an energy advantage? But then the question is, and then I can turn it back to Sudin, what, what can the United, what, what can the U.S. government do to, in a sense, can they really uh, um, block uh, LNG exports? Um, it, this is in many ways a, a matter of private, you know, private industry, private enterprise. So, Sudin. <laughs> Thanks, Heidi. Um, well, they can block it because the Secretary of Energy has the power to put conditions in the export license and has done that with a, a big reopener for. Um, to, in fact, stop the export under particular contracts and authorizations if he deems it to cease to be in the public interest to do so. So indeed, they can do that. Um, at least so far, they have reserved that power. The government has reserved that power to itself by putting that condition in the authorization. So we'll, we'll watch with interest to see if that policy changes. Um, the other interesting point that you raised was the impact of rising gas prices on domestic in, um, industries. And actually, one of the big proponents in the Obama administration for putting these conditions in the license was 
the American domestic petrochemical industry, which needs gas as a feedstock and is advantaged uh, with low gas prices and obviously disadvantaged as high gas prices go up. So it, it's not just the um, residential consumer in Boston uh, who's concerned about gas prices. It's, it's a major US industry, that is. Thank you. I'm going to uh, go back to, uh, with one more follow-up question to Tim. Then I have one other question, and then I'll turn it back, turn it over uh, to the audience. Uh, just listening to some of the answers on with respect to Russia, and is there a contradiction, you know, with exporting LNG and you know Russian energy uh, uh, exports to Europe and so forth? Is that an oversimplification? I mean, aren't the uh, you know, it seems to me there are a whole lot of other factors uh, that are involved in the equation, and the key is that Europe have a competitive market. And uh, even if there is a lot of Russian gas going into Europe, as long as there's the opportunity for LNG, uh, other, uh, other potential routes, uh, uh, all of the other things that Europe is trying to do to integrate its market, uh, and I could go on and on, that that you really can't talk about a contra about it being a contradiction. Well, I don't know, but I think I think your points uh, your points well taken. Uh, that's been the uh, I think the chief message for European policymakers writ large is that you know enhanced cooperation and better market integration is their their number one tool to enhance their overall energy security. Uh, they've been making great progress, as you know, and you've done a lot of lot of work here. Uh, and there's been a lot of work done elsewhere on this topic. Uh, so I think, I mean, I would, I would look at uh, this election and, and the outlook that is uncertain at the moment um, uh, and see that from a European point of view as a gentle reminder that, you know, your chief goal ought to be to make yourself resilient and continue those efforts, um, right? And, and I think it's too early to say what exactly, you know, future policy will be uh, from the U.S. and whether there will, in fact, be trade restrictions. I find it hard to get my head around that, but who knows? Um, does, it, does it really matter until it happens? No, because the chief message is still for Europeans to get, you know, to, to get, their own, get their own house in order. Um, and the new president's um, um, perception of alliances, uh, including those with European allies, uh, with NATO, um, you know, I think it's actually, it's not a gentle, it's a pretty strong reminder for Europeans to, uh, to, to, to get moving, uh, assess their own interests, uh, and, uh, and, and pursue those. Um, uh, so yeah, no, so, so I, think, I think that's right. And so um, the, on the one hand, we've had uh, a US administration that has supported and advocated free trade uh, and open markets for a very long time, uh, and, that, and that, that is changing now. Uh, and to what extent, again, uh, we, it's too early to tell, um, but it is changing now. Uh, does that then really matter? No, it's, uh, it's for Europe a good signal to, uh, to continue its efforts uh, and, and intensify them, actually. Well, there's been a lot of discussion over the last couple of years, uh, especially in this town, about uh, you know, really the impact of US LNG e exports on Europe. Uh, and I think a lot of the discussion was uh, often, you know, pol po politically tinged. Uh, the reality is uh, really that uh, while U.S. LNG exports to Europe, you know, would be greatly symbolic, um, and in fact they have been successful with exports to Spain and Portugal, um, in reality they would have a, a somewhat difficult time competing uh, in some parts of Europe, particularly Europe that is closer. Uh, to Russia that has access to Russian gas pipelines. But th the picture shouldn't end here because uh, in, 
at the end of the day, when gas is becoming a global commodity, and this is what I started my discussion with, uh, that means that the inflow of more natural gas into the market from the United States um, creates more liquidity and optionality overall. So that means customers in Europe, um, while they may still rely primarily on Russian gas, they have now more liquidity in the market to import gas from somewhere else. And uh, well, we have the Lithuanian ambassador here, and Lithuania launched its uh, LNG terminal in 2014. And while you know, it would be, I think, gr greatly symbolic if a US LNG tank <coughs> one day sailed into Klaipeda, that's probably not likely. But instead, or if it does, it will, you know, won't be the major source of Lithuania's gas. But instead, Lithuania now imports its uh, gas from Norway using this tanker. So this is the example of the type of dynamics that play, uh, play out in the end. Right. Um, the last question I will ask, at least for now, and then turn it to the audience. I can see from the audience that there are a lot of people here who have some interest in the uh, so-called southern gas corridor that will take gas from uh, uh, off, offshore Azerbaijan and uh, the Caspian uh, through uh, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Turkey, and Turkey, and on into Europe. You know, there, we have a situation where I think Turkey is probably looking to this new administration for a stronger relationship with the United States. My guess is uh, that the Azerbaijani government thinks that there may be an opportunity for a stronger relationship. Certainly the Russians think so. What does this mean? What might it mean uh, for, uh, for, for the Southern Corridor? Uh, because all those, those three countries may to some extent have different interests. And how might, how might all this play out? And again, does whatever we think about it, let's say we, well, whatever we think about now, the new administration, how much support we want to give or not uh, uh, for you know, gas coming from the Caspian. Uh, what do you think the effect of all of this could be? Tim? Um, well, I'd, I'm not sure how much it matters. Uh, we, um, the, 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 the projects that we've seen in the past that were heavily supported, politically supported and motivated, uh, were the ones that had a really hard time coming to fruition. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, we need gas demand to grow in Europe uh, and, uh, and then maybe some support to, to help a project on the way. But I think that's the key, the key issue is still that you need, you need demand growth and you need private, private parties to be interested in putting money on the table. Now, there's been some progress, a moderate version, obviously, uh, of what is then still called the Southern Corridor. I don't know if that name's still valid, but let's say so. If that 10 BCM gets there, uh, then... Uh, uh, and, and that's good news. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, but um, but but I will observe that over the years, an incredible amount uh, of time and political capital has been spent on on those 10 BCMs. And now, they're from a European. Even even now, demand has shrunk uh, substantially over the last couple of years. That's still not much more than a drop in a bucket when you look at European gas demand overall. Uh, so, is it worth it? I'll I'll leave that up as an open question. Well, I think the Southern Gas Corridor, um, there are a lot of great expectations for the Southern Gas Corridor, and I think <coughs> its political significance uh, cannot be underestimated. Uh, this will be, if it becomes, well, when it becomes operational, it will be the first time that Europe will get Caspian gas. Uh, now, 
considering how the global energy markets, uh, well, the global gas markets have changed uh, with, as I mentioned, European importers now having more optionality, that uh, commercial significance of the corridor um, perhaps is lesser than before. Uh, but when you started off your, your, your question with Turkey, I think Turkey is really the country to watch uh, uh, because Turkey is um, both for Europe and for Russia, it's a, a key state in their energy visions and strategies. Um, Europe uh, looks to Turkey to implement uh, the Southern Gas Corridor and help with its diversification efforts. Russia looks to Turkey to try to actually maintain its influence over Eurasian energy markets and it tries to woo Turkey with the, the alternative Turk Stream pipeline project and so on. And uh, the, the political card continuously upsets the waters there um, as um, Turkey-Russia relations are you know, experiencing ups and downs and turbulence and as uh, Turkey's relationship with the West and the United States is also experiencing some shifts. So I think really Turkey is the, the country to watch for the next uh, U.S. administration. Anything? Um, actually, Dick, the um, expertise of the three of you just um, really outweighs mine on this, uh, on this issue. So I'd like to ask a question instead. Given your recent um, experience and years in Azerbaijan, what's your perspective on this issue? Good question. Good question. OK. Uh, I'm supposed to be the moderator. <laughs> we aren't going to let you get away with that. Uh, I guess here's where I come out on that. My, if I had to bet, and I, and I think we all agree that, you know, really at the end of the day, who knows that, uh, uh, how these various relationships uh, are going to play out. But if I had to bet, uh, I would say, you know, absent pro problems that the TAP pipeline is still having on landing places in Italy and that kind of thing, that the, that the, the, the program as it presently is will take place. Uh, that there's been too much invested already, that Turkey has, is a major player and shareholder and both in Shakhtanese and in the TANAP pipeline, uh, that the Turkey-Azerbaijan relationship is strong enough that uh, uh, I don't think Turkey would do anything uh, that would be totally inconsistent with Azerbaijan's interests, uh, and that Russia can live with 10 BCM uh, going on to Europe, uh, it being you know a relatively small amount. I think what to watch is the future and what kind of expansion might take place. And I think that these various relationships uh, and could have an effect on, on future expansion. Uh, but I would expect to see at least the present plan of 16 BCM coming from Shakhtanese, 6 to Turkey, 10 on to Europe will happen. Uh, if things really get messed up in Europe uh, as to landing sites and that kind of thing, it wouldn't shock me if Turkey would be willing to take all of the gas. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the commercial folks involved and the companies would like to see that happen. Uh, and there are contracts, but you know, you don't know. Uh, so I guess that's where I see it. Why don't we open it up? I, uh, I saw the first hand I saw was uh, from another former ambassador to Azerbaijan, uh, going back some, uh, Rich Kosler, Rich, who's also a professor at George Mason. 
Thanks, Dick. Uh, and my question has nothing directly to do with Azerbaijan and Southern Gas Corridor. But what would be wrong with letting markets determine a lot of these issues as to whether there will be exports or not, or where those exports will go? Um, you know, we've, we've gotten in a bad habit of energy diplomacy, and we start to sound sometimes a lot like Russia. Um, so, uh, Don't you know, forget just, this is public. I understand, but uh, you know, wh why we're at a point where infrastructure is there, the global market, as you point out in your paper, is changing. Why not let the markets make these, these choices now? I think certainly the markets will be making those choices. And the markets will be the primary driver of where gas will go and how it will be traded and who will be the partners. But I think there is also, you know, uh, there, there is also an opportunity. There is also an opportunity for, uh, for countries to leverage their economic power. There is an opportunity for countries to leverage their energy power. There is an opportunity for energy diplomacy. I mean, we live also not just in an economic world. We live in a political economy, you can say. So I think it's, uh, for me, uh, this report and some of my thoughts, um, you know, they take the changing market as a starting point. Um, and then I see, well, what more can we do with this in, in the interests of the United States and in the interests of America's allies? Sudin uh, uh, and then Tim? Sure. Um, that's a fascinating question. And it, it points out that there is a difference and there has been a difference of how, at least in the US, different agencies have approached it. So my old agency, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, is almost 100% market-based. And that's the decisions are based almost purely on markets. Um, the Department of Energy, with their export authorizations, is not. And I think that the, the answer to that <coughs> discrepancy, or the reason for that discrepancy is exactly what Anya said. When we get into the international realm as opposed to the domestic realm, um, markets is perhaps the beginning of the story and the beginning of the trade, but there are other factors, um, strategic national security factors that, that can play out. I think, uh, Ambassador, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think that to a large extent that has happened already. And I think that as a nice, if as a nice bonus, you have some diplomatic advantages to that. I think that's great. Uh, to what extent you can actually steer those those bonuses, uh, you know, that's that's much harder to pin down. I think. Okay, uh, our friend from Lithuania. Yes, uh, thank you. It was a very interesting panel. And uh, yes, we would like to benefit from this U.S. diplomacy in gas market, and we have worked hard to be able to do this because we had no choice just two years ago. Now we have choice. And actually we have uh, also the first contract with US supplier. So it, not, it doesn't need to be, of course, American gas. It could be gas from anywhere, but we have a trader who, who has an obligation and price limit uh, on which he will be delivering gas to Lithuania. But my question would be, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on uh, Russia and LNG market. I mean, because we hear about the ambition to develop LNG capacity in Russia. So do you see the Russia uh, also as a strong player in the LNG market in the future? Well, Russia has certainly been behind as a player in LNG. Um, it, uh, you know, for 
previously the largest gas producer in the world and as such a significant exporter, it always relied on pipelines uh, based on the existing infrastructure. So it came very late to the LNG markets. It really has a strategy. I mean, part of Russia's uh, national energy strategy is to gear up LNG exports. Um, and uh, their, their first focus is the Asian markets. Um, so this is, again, another area where I see um, you know, competition between uh, American energy companies and uh, Russian energy interests. Tim, do you want to add anything? Uh, no, 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 I don't. Okay. okay, I'm going to go to this side of the room, and then I'll sort of rotate around and hopefully get everybody. Yes, over the, and could you identify yourself, please? Morning. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Carlos Dusanch. I'm the ambassador of Mozambique. Um, Welcome. And um, thank you. Thank you very much. And I wanted to start by thanking the Atlantic Council for convening this uh, uh, panel discussion. Uh, we are a new global province of natural gas, as you know. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We are very much interested in. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, my voice. Um, we are very much interested in these debates. And uh, the one thing I would like to ask the panel to unpack is this concept of uh, America first energy policy versus diplomacy and US leadership. From where I stand, diplomacy means negotiation and not only my way. Uh, is this the, around this concept that we are going to work, uh, the diplomacy and U.S. leadership? We welcome U.S. leadership. Uh, I think it's good. Um, but within the context of diplomacy, I think it's good. The, the other question I wanted to ask, um, before here I was in the U.K., and shale gas is a real problem uh, to be developed in, in the U.K. and Europe, I think. Is that a problem here, or that has been overcome? The laws of the land allow uh, shale gas to be explored without uh, a problem, concerns with the environment, and all that. Thank you. Well, I could give you my views on that, but let's start with a panel <laughs> on the shale part. On the shale? Or, or on well, anything on, else. Well, uh, both. I mean, if, I, I wish I could unpack. and. Uh, the America first energy policy um, for, for the time it seems to imply that uh, the administration is in favor of uh, continuing with production and supporting LNG exports but I think at the same time this is some of the maybe potential contradictions we, we've discussed uh, will that change let's say if uh, prices rise if there are considerations uh, for American industry, um, if there are considerations for you know, Amer well, domestic economic considerations. So I think that's a real question. Maybe then this kind of leadership and exports uh, will take a, a back seat to you know, America first and we use our own gas for domestic consumption. <coughs> so I think that's the big question to watch. Um, in terms of shale gas, yes, uh, the American shale revolution uh, has really been the driver of this uh, boost in American gas production. So over the last 16 years, the United States, well, shale production from shale in the US total natural gas production went from 1% to 2% in 
to more than 50%. So it's really shale gas that has been the driver of this boom. <coughs> Um, in other countries uh, and other parts of the world, um, it, it has not been so successful. In fact, no one has been able to replicate America's success story. I mean, Canada has done well. Uh, other countries that have been successful in fracking have been Argentina and China, but nowhere near, at least until today, to the same scale as the United States. And, and the reason that the United States and Canada are leaders in shale gas production has not so much to do with differences in technology from the rest of the world, but the legal system and the legal system and the ownership of the, of the resource. So in America, the, it's not a national resource, it's a private resource. And the shale gas deposit is owned by the owner of the land over it. So the interests are aligned. Um, so if you're an individual and, and you own a piece of the land over a shale play, um, it is probably in your interest to have it developed because then you reap the revenue stream, as opposed to if that revenue stream went to the government. Then you might, if you had control over access to your land to get the shale gas, you may not be interested in doing it. So it's an alignment of the, of the, of the legal system and uh, gas production in the US is regulated by the states as opposed to the federal government. So, um, and you've seen that play out in the US to an extent. For example, uh, there are uh, the shale play, the Marcellus, uh, that's in Pennsylvania and West Virginia extends into New York. And the governor of New York, um, in response to the wishes of, of New Yorkers, has um, prohibited banned shale development in New York. On the other hand, Pennsylvania and, and West Virginia the, the, have not done so, in part because of the contribution of that to their own economic development, and particularly in West Virginia, which is losing its coal production, and it can be replaced by some of its shale production, some of that, that revenue. Uh, maybe just to add a little bit, because uh, I think Anya is right, you know, there are opportunities in places like Argentina. Uh, uh, there are other issues in Argentina, but certainly shale is uh, very much of a possibility. Uh, China, look, to, look at Russia too over time. Uh, but it's not going to happen in Europe, in my view. Uh, and there are three reasons. What Sudin said is very important, uh, the issue over mineral rights and who has, uh, who has, the, re who has the resource rights. Uh, second, huge environmental opposition, uh, including, I would add, Russian-fueled opposition uh, in, uh, in Eastern Europe. I think they are very much behind the environmental protests in places like Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, and just a different geology uh, that hasn't, uh, hasn't worked out as well. Uh, so I would not expect much from Europe, uh, but maybe from some of these other places. Uh, let's go to the middle area. I, I, we have a hand right here. Hello, Domenico Vidakovic, Croatian and US. So question on LNG, I'm glad Lithuania is much fa faster than LNG terminal than in Croatia. What's, what is your view of Croatian LNG as we speak right now in America First energy policy? I know Ambassador Hochstein was there. 
we didn't see anybody from this administration. So what's your view on that? You know, again, um, building for countries in you know, Southern Europe, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, that previously were essentially captive markets for Gazprom that could only import, you know, or the majority of their gas for, from Russia, building LNG terminals gives them optionality, gives them flexibility. It allows them to better negotiate even their gas contracts with Gazprom, which was uh, evident in the case of Lithuania. So, uh, and also, as I discussed, the, the, the global gas markets have changed. So in, in these markets, it's a, a great option to have an LNG import terminal. Um, now, where that gas will come from, um, whether it will come from the United States, as, as we discussed, I don't think it matters so much. Um, uh, with this greater liquidity, there will be more options for other countries, uh, from maybe Norway, maybe from North Africa, and so on, uh, for LNG. My quick... I don't know. Anybody Tim, well, I think, no, yeah, no, I think that's right. The, uh, I mean, there is an opportunity to do so. I think one of the challenges is that the Croatian market's small, its demand is small, and so you, you depend on cooperation with neighboring countries uh, and make sure that you can, you can ship that gas to those countries too, and I think that's where some of the challenges, the key challenges have, have been. Um, those need to be resolved in Croatia and in Budapest and, and other neighboring countries, and, and it's not up to, you know, investors or, I mean, that's what governments need to sort out. Mm -hmm. And there's just a brief... And because we discussed a lot about, you know, markets versus politics. But in cases like this, and in, ca like in case, the case of Lithuania, you know, political commitment also makes a difference. And uh, certainly you have to have the investors, you have to have the commercial interests. But uh, when the market is small like this, um, you know, the case of Croatia, the case of Lithuania, that political determination and that political interest to carry it through also matters. Yeah. Uh, I might just add briefly, uh, Maybe other than you, have you been there at the site? Yes. Yeah, so I may be the only other person in the room uh, <laughs> who, who actually has been at the site of the Kurt Terminal. And this was uh, some seven years ago, and my guess is that it looks exactly the same today it as it, <laughs> as well, it did. We went from, uh, from land-based terminal, now we're talking about floaters. So right, We right. are progressing. <laughs> but, you know, the problem then, and, and I think still a problem, is getting a consortium of companies together who are willing to, you know, willing to take the market risks to do it. I would just add briefly, though, um, we at the Atlantic Council presented a paper uh, on uh, a north-south corridor going from, Lith basically from the Baltics, uh, Poland and Lithuania, to Croatia and building connections there. Whether or not that can help, uh, you know, push the development of that terminal uh, we'll see. And there are also potential, potentially new sources of gas, whether, you know, even the eastern Mediterranean could play, you know, could play a role uh, with ultimately someday uh, with respect to a terminal there. It's something that my friend Gianni in the front row for many might be interested in. Uh, so, uh, or not, but uh, in any event. Uh, uh, it, uh, uh, so, we'll see what happens, but it's been, a, as you said, a slow process. Uh, okay, we, uh, let me go to this side, and I'm going to keep going back and forth. We still have 25 minutes. It's good. There are brief questions, brief yeah. answers. Let's go ahead. Doug. Okay. Uh, uh, Doug Hengel, the German <laughs> Marshall Fund. I wanted to come back to the... We're ending. Sorry. Okay, go ahead, Doug. I wanted to come back to the issue of, of markets and economics. So notwithstanding the little jump in prices in January, because there seemed to be a shortage of gas on the market, 
it appears we're headed into a, a, uh, an oversupply situation on LNG, at least for the next few years and maybe beyond that. So is there, uh, will the United, will US LNG be competitive against Australia and Gutter and, and, and others? Uh, how can we make ourselves more competitive uh, you know, as part of the America First, how can we make sure our gas is the one that's exported and can compete well against all the others out there? Well, I'll, I'll get help from my panelists, but my first uh, take is, you know, we've had these conditions of, you know, oversupply or tremendous supply already. And despite the market, maybe let's say skepticism, we saw, you know, let's say when we started in 2014, this was market exuberance. You know, we thought we'll be sending, you know, US LNG instantly everywhere. And then we had this market pessimism. But at the end of the day, 2016 showed that even in low uh, price <coughs> conditions and even with a considerable liquidity or oversupply or, or glut, however you want to call it in the market, uh, American LNG was still successful, and as I mentioned, the list uh, went across the world. Um, also, you know, LNG investments tend to be, these are long-term investments, and uh, contracts are signed for the long-term. So, um, these price fluctuations have an impact on the immediate, in the, you know, the spot market and short-term trades, but in the longer-term contracts and uh, considerations, they, you know, they tend to be tempered and balanced, but... Uh, well, I, so I, I'm, I'm not really sure how much... Uh, I think you're right, Doug, that we are entering a phase of a lot of oversupply, uh, and uh, I'm not really sure we've seen that much of it. Uh, I think a good indicator would be if lots of, lots of cargoes flow to Euro continental Europe and are taken in there, and we've seen some. I mean, UK has a price floor, so obviously there it makes more sense, and you have fuel switching, and so we've seen an uptick there. Um, but uh, we've seen a lot, I think, uh, demand, uh, seasonal, seasonal uh, demand-driven supplies going first Latin America, then Asia with the cold winter. Okay, all of that makes sense. And now more projects are coming to market. Mind you that in the, in the, the majority of the U.S. projects is not yet operational. Uh, even of the first project, most of the trains are not operational. So it's all in, early, in, in a pretty early stage. Um, a number of Australian pro projects coming to market in coming years. So I think we're entering, we're entering that phase. Um, uh, and a big question then is how does demand respond, right? And that I, I guess everyone is wondering, um, uh, does that incentivize incremental demand? And I think that's, that's obviously the hope of, of, of the market players. Um, and to what extent it happens, we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. You know, will the major consuming countries in Asia take in additional volumes? Are they ready to do that? Um, uh, and what about all the small-scale uh, importers that we've seen emerge over, over the last couple of years, you know, Egypt and uh, uh, Jordan, Lithuania, uh, Colombia, Kuwait, there's a, whole, there's a whole host of countries. If you put them all together, the aggregate demand is pretty substantial. But I think the question to, to, that, that you know, we have to grapple with is, okay, fine, if you add all that up, what does that then mean, uh, and how much time does it then take to consume those additional volumes that are coming to market? And whether that's going to be whether that's going to be three years, it's going to be eight years. It's really hard to pin down on. I, I would put two caveats uh, on on what's been said. One is yes, I think there have been more exports than have been expected, uh, and but there are two questions I would have, and I don't know the answers to them. 
But one question is, I think some companies might want to be exporting, even at a loss, if it is a loss, I don't know, uh, just to show that it can be done. Uh, but, the, but the second part of it is, and I was in business for many years, and we'd find times when we would sell products at a loss because it's still covered overhead and we were better off selling it than not. And that might be the case. I don't know whether that's the case now. I just don't know with some companies. It could be, because uh, 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 there's been a lot of overhead invested. You can't do that forever, uh, but in, a in the short to midterm, you can, a short term, certainly. So I don't know whether that's a factor or not. OK, a question from, this, from the middle. Uh, OK, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Is that, that a hard stop at 10.15? <laughs> No? <laughs> Bean is the boss over there. Uh, she's the one. Okay, well, it, it, you know, we'll go a few minutes over, and if people have to leave, they can leave. Let's take two questions at a time. Your question, and then, Bob, your question. Rex Wemp at Northern Resource. I have a two-part question on the theme of uh, state intervention. First, for Sadine, what do you think is the... Uh, Fulcrum security, i.e., the, the critical point for <coughs> expediting approvals now, and how would your firm and, and others like it attack this question if you care to comment on legal strategy publicly? And second, uh, continuing on this, this theme of state intervention, outside the spot market, isn't it rather a fantasy to say that there is a global energy market given the, uh, the uh, mercantilist? positions of large countries in southern and eastern Asia? And if so, what can or should the US be doing to create a more globalized market? Thank you. Bob. Thank you. Uh, Bob Icourt for the Atlantic Council. Um, Tim, you mentioned uh, Mexico. And obviously, that's of great interest right now in terms of the Trump administration and what our policies will be yeah. with regards to Mexico. Um, and I think it's important from our standpoint, from the standpoint of market, um, regulatory approvals, uh, as well as the uh, overall policy relationships and trade relationships with Mexico. So I was interested in your comments on that aspect. We've seen enormous growth in the, in the gas demand and many pipelines uh, currently and future planned, yeah. in large part spurred by the plans for major investment in factories, including automobile factories and others in Mexico. Um, some of those have been held up, Ms. Kelly, by regulatory concerns, environmental concerns. But certainly it came up in Perry's uh, nomination hearing, and he was very positive about the potential of that relationship in the future. So as Pinetas like maybe coming to Washington, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays into the broader discussion, so I'd be interested in your comments. Okay. Fascinating. Um, I love your question um, because it focuses on what's the solution to the problem. And the way that I think about it is that the issue, uh, the issuance of these authorizations um, involves three different pieces of law, a statute, a regulation, and a policy. And it's hard to change the statute. I, I would expect, though, that this Congress, with the Republican majority in both houses and, and with a, a Secretary of Energy and a President pro-LNG export, that, that we may see um, changes to the statute. 
it'll just take a while. The regulations, it's a little easier to change. It's much easier to change a regulation than a statute, um, but it still involves a process. Probably takes it a minimum nine months. So, but policy can be changed on a dime. So that's where I would focus for my clients because there are policies both at FERC and at DOE that could be changed the moment there is a new head of the agency. At, um, at FERC, the policy would, the change in policy would involve putting more resources into that area. FERC divides its resources up among electricity, gas, and oil. And historically, at least the most recent history, the resources have been in electricity because electric markets have, have gobbled them up. Um, and I think it's time to move resources into gas. And um, it could be done relatively easily. And um, more focus could be put on FERC's relationship with the cooperating agencies to um, have shorter timelines and demand more um, quicker response. And in an administration with, uh, where all the goals seem to be aligned around this, I think you could achieve that if, that, if you were determined to do that. And at, at DOE, it's frankly a, a policy as to what it means to be in the public interest. Um, and it can be changed on a case-by-case -case basis. So approaching the Secretary of Energy and having a discussion about what exactly the policy is, what you want it to be, and why it should change, I think would um, likely bear fruit. And the second, the Mexico. Yeah, happy. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think it's a, I think it's a major concern for the Mexicans. Obviously, my uh, my my neighbor, um, uh, office neighbor in uh, at Columbia, Adrian uh, Lajuz, used to be the CEO of Pemex, and he does a lot of work on this, obviously, um, uh, and is uh, and is deeply concerned about 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 the developments that we see unfold now. Um, the the Mexican economy obviously is organized in a way that's pegged to NAFTA to increase trade, as you described as well, with Mexico, I think by the end of the decade, there'll be 15 entry points for natural gas flowing into, flowing into Mexico. Uh, I think imports have tripled over the last five years or so. So uh, demand is rising rapidly. It's mostly for electricity generation, some industrial activity, of course, as well. Um, and the country has very limited options, right? It has three regasification terminals, but they're increasingly outcompeted by, by cheap Texas gas. Um, so you have some options. You have no storage capacity in the country. Um, so you're, you're on the one hand, you had assumed, as, as Mexican government, you had assumed that you would have favorable trade relations with the U.S. And all of a sudden, uh, you, you have to at least ask questions about this, right? And I, and I think that, I mean, I think as you, as you alluded to, and I think, I think that's absolutely right, there, on the one hand, there seems to be a lot of support within this government for, for energy trade, uh, and that would include then, obviously, exports to Mexico. The, the energy secretary was closely involved in, in all of this and, and would obviously support this. Um, but yeah, at the same time, you have a president who says, you know, want to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, and I want, to, I want to build a wall, and so and so this environment clouds uh, clouds that that you know what what seems like a uh, from a business point of view a very logical cooperation uh, that's been very fruitful for both the United States and for Mexico. Um, so it clouds these efforts, um, and and what that means going forward is hard, but but it already costs Mexico, right? We've seen uh, Adrian mentioned to me the other day we've seen 
uh, foreign direct investment in Mexico slow down because of the uncertainty and political risk, and it's expected that that will continue. Every time the president tweets about the wall, about Mexico, the value of the peso drops. And so this actually already hurts Mexico. Uh, country is heading into elections next year, uh, and one of the candidates is suggesting that the reforms that the Mexican authorities have been working on, uh, David Goldwyn here did a lot of work on that too, next to Adrian. Um, uh, the, one, of the, one of the candidates suggested maybe we should, we should slow that down. Should we really do that? Uh, this is obviously ammunition for that discussion. Should we go down that road in which we cooperate with the United States, whereas we don't really know what the long-term objectives of this country are? So I think major uncertainty and, and, uh, yeah, and, and worries, on the, at least on the Mexican side. And the drama is going to continue over the next week, yep. given the Mexican president's response to the, to the wall and whether he still comes to Washington. Of course. And yeah. all of of course. Okay, how many people still have questions? Two? I see two. Okay, let's take, okay, three. I'm going to take the th three questions all at once, and then we're going to close it down. Two over here. Sorry, Lee, I saw you last. <laughs> okay. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Vagar Gurbanov. I'm from Embassy of Azerbaijan. Thank you very much for this panel, uh, timely discussion, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Ambassador, for your comments on Southern Gas Corridor. Uh, very much appreciate it, and thank you very much for your efforts to bring this uh, I mean, when you were working in Baku, obviously uh, this can be a 10 BCM project, but uh, availability of infrastructure in place and capacity, which is much more beyond than 10 BCM, is, is, a, is an asset for the region. My question is, uh, so is on other aspect. I mean, uh, taking into account uh, two things, uh, availability of vast gas reserves in the world and in the Middle East, uh, and as uh, Dr. Ragni mentioned, uh, gas becoming a kind of global commodity with LNG and with other uh, opportunities. Do you think uh, in the coming five years, new global players in the uh, gas market, and especially in the European market? And what do you think, how would be new administration reaction of coming new competitors or new gas players to the market? Thank, Thank you. you. Good. Okay. Second question back there. Um, I'm Rachel with SP Global News. Um, I was wondering a follow up to uh, Sudin when you mentioned that the current DOE export authorizations have a clause that say the case can be reopened. I'm wondering if gas prices rise, if there's a risk at all that authorizations that have already been given out could potentially be rolled back. Okay, and then Michael, Michael Ratner, third question. Sure, Michael Ratner with Congressional Research Service. Minor, a uh, couple of uh, comments. One uh, is that DOE has approved about 15 BCF per day of LNG exports to non-free trade countries, which is about 20% of our gas production currently. Even if DOE uh, granted, as you said, they can define the public interest any way they want, and Secretary Perry could uh, approve every project on day one, but that's not going to change the FERC process. And, you know, there has not been as much um, consternation with the FERC process because people know it and it takes time and people go through <coughs> it. And, and so, even, again, I think the market will bear out how much LNG exports actually get built, how many terminals get built. I'd also like to point out that, you know, it's not necessarily the terminal owner who's on the hook. It's the people who are signed the offtake contract. So BG Group 
is doing, you know, which is now Shell, is doing their best to move that gas around, uh, around the market. And they're, they're doing a good job with it, but they're also, you know, they would prefer to be just sending the gas for 20 years to one terminal. Um, and that said, the, the last comment I have has to do with a, a saying in this town of, of where you stand depends upon where you sit. And now Mr. Tillerson is sitting, or will be sitting at the State Department and not at, at Exxon. And I think that potentially will change his perspective, but historically Exxon and many companies don't want the U.S. government in their business. Um, and that uh, particularly when it comes to shale development, it's been the small players, not the big players, that have been that have been pushing the innovation, and that's kind of the last component of what kind of spurred our development. So I'll stop there in the absence of time. So, okay, let me do, do this. The three of you, uh, you've heard the three questions. Why don't each of you make your closing comments and respond to which of the questions you want to respond to? So maybe starting Tim. At yeah, that's fine. I'll be very brief, and I'll I'll, I'll leave it to two ladies. Uh, uh, new players um, uh, on the demand side for sure, right? So we're we're seeing that already. Uh, smaller, and that's and that's and that's good news, by the way. Uh, more countries that use use new technology to import import LNG, even on smaller scale. I think it's all good news. More liquidity, more trade, all that's good news, and I think we'll see that happen. On the production side, I'm not so sure. Um, uh, because you asked for global players, uh, I think you you may refer to, for instance, Iran. Uh, but it seems to me that you know some. I mean, even though the reserves obviously are enormous, uh, the vast majority of those may well be gobbled up domestically. And so I don't know how to what extent it will actually be an international player in the in the short and medium term. Um, the market and the development of infrastructure. Uh, it, it is traditional in the United States with the development of particularly gas infrastructure where, where all of the authority is in the federal government as opposed to say electricity infrastructure where it's shared with the states that um, since 1992 um, the emphasis has been on markets and letting the markets work and that's been FERC's philosophy. FERC will certificate as many applications for infrastructure development as come to it because FERC knows that those applications, that those, that infrastructure will not be built unless there's demand for it. To me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and over the last, what, 25 years, that policy has worked well. We don't have overbuild in the US. We've kept up with, with demand, with infrastructure. So I think you're right on, and I think that will continue. Um, it was interesting to be at FERC and watch DOE not take a market approach to export licenses. Um, a lot of discussion in the halls. Uh, why would they do that? Um, they do that because they have a different mission. FERC's mission is build the infrastructure that we need. DOE's mission is more diverse. Um, but it's a matter of policy, so it can be interpreted differently by this administration. I think it will. I think it'll be more market-oriented, particularly um, Secretary Perry and his experience in Texas. Um, tying a little bit the two questions together, there are indeed vast uh, reserves in the world, but we've discussed already some of the conditions that made the U.S. unique and created the shale boom here. I mean, other factors are also American entrepreneurship, financing availabilities, and the fact that there, there were many small competitive companies in the market. 
And uh, that is not the case generally across the world. And therefore, in the rather, sh well, the rather short time horizon you gave of about five years, uh, um, you know, most people don't expect tremendous success stories to happen elsewhere. But of course, we were always surprised by you know, technology and other factors that can arise. Now, in terms of the US response, I think we have to uh, you know, remember that for some countries that, you know, that are traditionally energy producers, uh, this is their main lifeline, this is their main source of revenues. You know, we're considering Russia, countries in the Middle East. The United States is not uh, in a similar position. So therefore, even if more competition and more producers uh, emerge on the international market, this is not going to you know, serve a, a blow to the American economy. Okay, uh, I think this is about it. First of all, let me thank just this wonderful audience. Uh, big audience, great questions. Uh, thank you for your participation. Thank you, Anya, for doing the report. Mm -hmm. And uh, it certainly generated a tremendous amount of uh, excellent discussion, great job. And also our panelists, other panelists, Tim and Sudin, thank you and uh, uh, for uh, your participation, and so I hope I'll hope we'll see you again soon at another event. Thank you very much. <laughs>